Great to see you all this morning. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In the earlier service, I asked that question and somebody shouted from the back, Caesar's dead. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's really true. <laughs> he is. Well, that was the question that was posed by the scribes and the Pharisees to Jesus in the gospel accounts. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they thought that that would put him on the horns of a dilemma, that, that he were, well, that he'd be in trouble either way. If he answered uh, yes, he'd be in trouble with the masses and they'd no longer follow him. If he said no, then he, they knew that Rome would intervene and Jesus would pay the ultimate price. But his answer, Jesus' answer to them, not only silenced them, but it also set forth a principle for followers of Christ down through the ages, including us today, in terms of understanding our role when it relates to God and government. In fact, Christ calls citizens of heaven to be good citizens on earth. We have dual citizenship with rights and responsibilities in both kingdoms. Many are still confused and understandably so as to how to relate to both of these and one of the reasons is because sometimes we get so enamored with the things of this world that we think it's all up to governing authorities here and whoever is in power that's the ultimate decision as to how our lives are going to be but not so there's another kingdom and that's the kingdom of heaven but on the other extreme, we can be so caught up in the heavenly realm that we think it's irrelevant how we live our lives here and whether or not we should be involved in government on this level. Paul the Apostle seemed to understand the balance when uh, he expressed it in various ways in the New Testament. He wrote half the letters of the New Testament. One of the things that he wrote to the church in Philippi and to the church at Kaimuki is this. He said, for our citizenship as followers of Christ is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We walk this earth, but our citizenship's in heaven. Paul was a grateful citizen of the kingdom of heaven. At the same time, he was a citizen of the Roman Empire, and he exercised the rights that he had there. And I'll give you an example out of the New Testament. Following his third missionary journey, and you can trace his journeys in the book of Acts, he comes back to Jerusalem, and he's going up to the Temple Mount, and he's going to worship. And he, he takes some men from Asia that are with him. And uh, Asia is Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. But there were some Jews in the temple compound that saw him with them. They knew what Paul had been preaching up there in terms of the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ and they fomented a riot and they accused him of all, all kinds of things and people grabbed him in that riot and, and they started beating him and they would have killed him had soldiers, Roman soldiers not intervened because there was a fortress called the Fortress Antonio that sat up above the temple and for the express purpose of being able to keep calm and, and uh, well, any riots down there and so the soldiers came rushing down into the midst of that mob and they took 
Paul out of their uh, hands and were escorting him away when Paul asked if he could address the crowd. And they stopped on the stairs leading up and gave him the opportunity. And he began to speak to them and he shared his faith story or his testimony. And it was all going okay until he reached the point about Christ and they lost it again and started going chaotic. And so the soldiers took him up into the fort where the commander ordered that Paul be stretched out and scourged so that they might extract the truth and some information from him. We'll pick it up there in Acts chapter 22. And it says, But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. Paul had dual citizenship. And he exercised the rights and responsibilities in each realm. And he knew that Christ calls citizens of heaven to be good citizens on earth. I want to consider some principles that relate to our citizenship in both realms. And we're going to do so by looking at a passage that begins in Romans chapter 12 and stretches into the 13th chapter. In the original writing of the New Testament, there weren't chapter and verse divisions. And so sometimes we just don't realize, wow, this relates to that. And I think we have a case in point here. But there's an outline in your bulletin. And here's the first principle. Citizens of God's kingdom turn the other cheek, allowing God to avenge evil. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 12, Paul said, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, and now he quotes the Old Testament, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." The part of uh, that that sounds good to us when we are told not to get revenge is heaping hot coals on somebody's head. But that's not what he means. That's not up to us, okay? He's saying if you return good for evil, the Lord is able to just sear, burn that person's conscience so that they might repent and uh, come to him as well. But we have to do our part, and that is not taking revenge, but returning good for evil, whatever the situation, as citizens of the kingdom. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because you know that Jesus, when he was speaking of his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, said that his followers, if they're struck on one cheek, should turn to that person the other cheek also, and that was the worst insult. If someone compelled you to go a mile with him, you were to go a second mile, and of course... 
They lived in occupied territory, and any Roman soldier could tell anyone, pick up my pack and carry it for a mile, and you had to do that. And Jesus said, take it a second mile. Wow, that would speak to that Roman soldier. And he said, if someone asks for your cloak, give them your tunic also. So non-retaliation was the, was the hallmark of the kingdom that Jesus brought in when he ushered it in. Individuals are responsible to submit and obey the highest authority and then not extract vengeance. Leave that to the Lord. Well, God sometimes uses human agencies or instruments to carry out his will and even to avenge. And he's ordained, Scripture tells us, three institutions. One is government, one is the church, and one is the family. And he's given authority to the leadership in each of those, in each of those agencies to give direction and to bring correction. And it's for the good of those who are governed in each circumstance. And so in this passage, we move into a period where he's talking primarily about government. And I want to show you from Paul's words how that works out in our lives. Citizens of God's kingdoms submit, God's kingdom submit to human government, recognizing it is God's instrument to promote good. That was his intent. And so Paul says this in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they, have, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Notice it says that... Uh, You've opposed the ordinance of God. He's ordained government. That's one of the agencies he's ordained. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. When Paul says there's no authority except that which is from God and every authority is established by God, if we were to press that, we'd have to conclude that every bloodthirsty tyrant, every genocidal dictator, every anti-Christian regime, every corrupt politician or crooked judge, every sadistic policeman, is put in that position by God. And that's true in the ultimate sense because God is sovereign. He's over all. He's in control. And he's responsible for everything, ultimately. But God has allowed free will. And we live in a fallen world because of that free will. And because sin has intervened, sinful people occupy positions of authority, whether it's in the family, whether it's in the church, or whether it's in government, and sometimes make terrible decisions, and instead of promoting good, promote evil. Sadly, but true. Well, Paul's assumption here is that the roles that God has created 
were intended for good, though occupied often by sinful people who make wrong choices. In other words, promotion of good is government as God intended it. That's God's ideal. He established government for that reason, but just a few, year, few years later than when this letter was written, Nero would come into power as an emperor in Rome. And he would exact much that would be evil. In fact, Paul himself would languish in a Roman prison under Nero's authority and later be executed by Nero's proclamation, even though Paul was only doing good. So it's the role and not the person that uh, is set up by God and often corrupted. Now, in America today, we have an unbelievable opportunity because America in all of history is a unique experiment in government where government was set up to be, as Abraham Lincoln declared, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We're the ones that determine who's in power. This is a republic form of government, a republican form of government, not in terms of Republican or Democrat. A republic means we elect representatives. They strictly did not want a, a pure democracy where every vote counts because they uh, just uh, individually because it, they said that could lead to tyranny of the majority. But they wanted good representatives to be put into place by the people. That's what we have is a Republican form of government. So that is a wonderful privilege, but it carries with it a great responsibility. Because that means we're it. We're the ones who determine uh, who the government is and how we are governed. And so in recent years, we've seen horrible decisions, in my opinion, made by the highest levels of our government. Whether it's some of the uh, positions taken by our president or the executive orders issued by him, whether it's some of the decisions that have been made by our Congress or unwillingness to make decisions, or whether it's the decisions that have been made by the Supreme Court or federal courts, some of those have been absolutely antithetical to what God's Word says, clearly. So who's to blame? Well, we can point the finger at them, but eventually we have to look at ourselves as the electorate, as the people that put them in those positions of authority. There's a real lack of information among the electorate today. So many are just unplugged, un, uh, unaware of what's happening. Political scientists tell us that it's not a lack of information that is available to voters, but a lack of interest. That we're preoccupied with other things, and some things are pretty trivial compared to the direction that this nation takes. We're outraged by Congress and the performance of Congress, and yet 80% of incumbents in Congress are reelected time and time again because we don't think about what they did or didn't do and just uh, put them back in office. Tony Evans is a pastor in Dallas, Texas with the Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship and uh, he's a, a great pastor, and, and he's a wonderful author, too. In fact, he wrote a book 
called Kingdom Citizens, which I'd highly recommend. I haven't even read it. I've read other books of his, but I know I can recommend this one. And he talks about these things. But one thing that Tony Evans said was, many, if not most Christians, begin with the wrong question of who they should vote for rather than the more important question of how they should vote. Asking the correct question is fundamental to knowing how to arrive at the correct answer. People have asked me, Pastor Ron, who are you going to vote for for president? And, well, mention that at the end of the service where I'm going with that one. Not specifically this weekend, but I'll give you a hint. Next, uh, next week I'll talk more about it, but you know what? More important than who we're going to vote for is how we arrive at that decision. And so that's what he's getting at here. And in fact, there was another pastor who lived over 100 years ago. He was elected to the presidency in 1880 and was assassinated in 1881, James A. Garfield. He was from Ohio. And by the way, he was a member of the Christian church, same movement as ours. And while he was in the office of president, he, he preached at revival meetings. And people were getting saved under his ministry while he was the president. Isn't that interesting? Well, he said this back then, around the, the centennial of the republic, late 1870s. He said, when you become, excuse me, he said, now more than ever before, the people are responsible for the character of their congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. And he pointed to the next centennial, which would have been 1976. He said he was fearful about what would happen by then. Well, here we are. There was another early American, even earlier, who lived between the mid-1700s and the mid-1800s. His name was Noah Webster. He was called the father of, of uh, scholastic, education, scholastic education in America. He wrote books that were credited for educating five generations of children in America in spelling and in reading. In fact, his name Webster became synonymous with dictionary. This is what Noah Webster said, and it's a little lengthy. Bear with me on this one. He said, when you become entitled to exercise the right of voting for public officers, let it be impressed on your mind that God commands for you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. The preservation of a Republican government depends on the faithful discharge of this duty. If the citizens neglect their duty and place unprincipled men in office, the government will soon be corrupted. Laws will be made not for the public good, so much as for selfish or local purposes. Corrupt or incompetent men will be appointed to execute the laws. The public revenues will be squandered on unworthy men, and the rights of citizens will be violated or disregarded. If a Republican government fails to secure public prosperity and happiness, it must be because the citizens neglect the divine commands and elect bad men to make and administer the laws. Well, the message is clear here. If we have bad government in America, it's because we have been negligent in not only being informed, but involved. 
We need to vote, but we need to vote with wisdom and godly wisdom and biblical direction. I'm reminded of that parable of the talents that Jesus told because um, it says, Jesus said that uh, the master was going away and he took three of his servants and he gave them each a, a talent, which was a sum of money. He gave to one five talents, to another two, to another one. Went away, came back, and asked for an accounting. And the two that had received five and two talents gave him that with interest. The other one had buried it and thought that his master would be pleased. His master was not pleased. In fact, he took that one from him and punished him. Now, these three servants did not ask to be given those talents. But the master gave it to them, and then he held them accountable for it. We may not have asked those of us who are American citizens by birth to be born here, but we received an amazing blessing when we did. The privilege of living here and the responsibility that goes with it and there's an accountability that goes with it as well. And so I really believe that these early Americans were right, that we have a privilege, but we also have a responsibility, a God-given responsibility to exercise uh, in this nation that God has entrusted to us. Government was intended to promote good, and we have a say in that. Secondly, citizens of God's kingdom submit to human government, recognizing it is God's instrument to punish evil. Not just to promote the good, but to punish evil. That's an agency of wrath sometimes. Paul said in verse 4 of 13, chapter 13, he said, But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not, government does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So we should obey the laws, not just because we might get caught if we don't, but because of conscience' sake, it's the right thing to do. We shouldn't go 90 miles an hour down H1 uh, when there are no cops around, thinking we won't get caught, but because it's not the right thing to do. There's a promotion of good there. There's, there's uh, the good of all involved in, as well. And our conscience is, should be a factor there. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So from this extended passage that flows from Romans 12 into Romans 13, it's clear that as individual members and citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we're not to exact our own vengeance, but we're to entrust that to agencies that God uses for that. And one in particular here is government brings vengeance on those who need to be held accountable. A government is ordained of God to protect its citizenry. I believe personally that government tends to just, by its own nature, grow bigger and bigger and to intrude into our lives in places it was never intended to get. 
But government should protect its citizenry, and that means from foreign threats as well as domestic threats. And I think we saw some examples of that just last week when the bombs went off in New York and Newark last Sunday. The federal government got involved and they apprehended the man whom they've linked to international terrorism. And that's good. That's what governments should do and they should bring vengeance on that situation. They need to be involved prior to those things and during and certainly after. The circumstance situation in Charlotte, North Carolina, was another example of government intervention because there's a whole lot of things surrounding that and some things have not been uh, proven or made clear yet. But one thing that I'll just focus on is when the protests move beyond lawful protest to where some of them begin to break windows and invade shops and loot those shops, that was crossing the line. And so necessarily they brought in not only the police but the National Guard to preserve order, to protect the citizenry and to, to be there for the, those store owners. That's the right use of government force, and God ordains that. That's why we pay taxes, for those kinds of things. That's government as God intended, to promote good and to punish evil. But what about when the government uh, promotes evil and punishes good? And that happens, doesn't it? It even happens in our nation, and I could cite examples. But is there a time for citizens of this nation to disobey the government? Is there just cause for civil disobedience? Absolutely. In fact, uh, I think Chuck Colson in his book Kingdoms in Conflict outlines three times when that is justified. And I'll just mention them briefly. One of them is this. Civil disobedience is justified when government usurps the role of the church. When the government demands from its citizens allegiance or worship that is only due to God. We see an example of that in Daniel, the book of Daniel, where three young Jewish boys were taken into exile in Babylon. And at one point the king, he erects this statue out on the plains and and uh, he wants everybody to bow down and worship. And these three young boys said, no way. And they gave him another chance. And they lit up the band and played the music. And they stood. They wouldn't kneel or bow. So they were brought in before the king. And they were threatened. And he told them that if they didn't worship that statue, that they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they said, we'll not do it. And they said... Uh, our God will deliver us. But even if he does not, we will not bow down and worship that idol. Well, as you know, they were thrown into the furnace. They were unharmed. And God did deliver them. But they stood against a tyrant, against a king who demanded to be worshipped rather than giving worship to the true God. And sometimes governments, by their very nature, are asking us to bow down and worship them. And that's a time to say, we won't do it, and be willing to accept the consequences. A second cause for civil disobedience is when the state restricts freedom of conscience, where to obey government or the state means to disobey God. We see this in Scripture illustrated, this civil disobedience, 
in the book of Acts where Peter and John, apostles of Jesus, are called in before the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin, and that was under Rome, given authority in Palestine. And these guys were preaching the gospel of Jesus, and they threatened them, and they told them not to teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John looked at him and said, well, you judge what is right, but we must obey God rather than man. Wow. And they were beaten, and they were let go, and they continued to preach. And so their understanding was that when God, who's overall, and government steps out from under that and asks you to obey them rather than God, you've got to give obedience to God and be willing to pay the price. A third occasion, Colson admits, is more difficult. It's not as clear. And that is when the state flagrantly ignores divinely mandated responsibilities to preserve life, to maintain order and justice, and this should never be undertaken lightly to disobey in these circumstances. It should never be done for the purpose of creating disorder um, and there should always be a willingness if we choose to resist the government in these areas of conscience to accept the consequences. Francis Schaeffer, so many years ago, when he wrote A Christian Manifesto, talked about that. And he said if Christians uh, choose to withhold taxes to protest abortion, which had just come into law at that time, he said that may be a choice but you've got to be willing to pay the consequences, uh, the fines or imprisonment or whatever it might entail. And he, he went on and talked about that. An instance that happened not that many years before that was in the 1960s when uh, in Selma, Alabama, led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, chose to resist the government, chose to march, chose to boycott, chose to uh, enter restaurants and, and have sit-ins and uh, said that this is wrong, this discrimination is wrong, and we'll pay the price, and they did. They were treated horribly as a result, but interestingly, while the government in that circumstance had the power, they had the moral authority, and uh, they won the day because of that when they resisted passionately and peacefully in that process. Another current example that has kind of taken the sports world by storm, for those of you who are into sports, is the San Francisco 49er quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, who, when the Star Spangled Banner is played, refuses to stand for that national anthem. He'll take a knee instead. And now, around the league, a few others have joined him. Does he have the right to do that? He absolutely does. As an American, he can choose to do so. But, as someone reminded me after the TGIF service, we have a, a right to boycott the 49ers or the NFL if we want to. And in fact, viewership is off uh, in the NFL. In fact, I saw one guy on a YouTube video who had taken a Colin Kaepernick jersey and uh, he torched it and played the Star Spangled Banner with his hand on his chest. <laughs> Well, does he have the right? He does have the right to do that. I would only say this. When it comes to civil disobedience as a matter of conscience, we need to be wise and 
stand on biblical grounds if we do so. I personally think Colin Kaepernick is misguided, misinformed in some areas. He has the right to do it. When we do that, if we do that, we better stand on solid biblical ground and the truth when we take those kinds of stands. Chuck Colson says this, and I think there's wisdom in this. There should always be a healthy tension between the government and the church because the church needs to hold the government responsible. The church needs to speak truth to power in terms of, of our engagement with those in power, in terms of our voting and all our activities. We may need to hold them accountable. But the government also needs to hold the church accountable because when the church historically gains power, it can become corrupt too because it has people involved in leadership in church. And so the government also needs to hold the church in check and there is a healthy tension. But that happens uh, as believers do their part standing on truth and principle. And so in conclusion, I would say Christ calls the citizens of heaven to be good citizens on earth. That's the call, the claim that Christ has on our lives. And as we exercise that, we will see God move powerfully in our lives, in our personal relationships, in our local and in our national government. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have as citizens of this nation. Thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to exercise responsibilities that you've given to us. And we pray for our nation in these days. And God, we pray for our leaders and for those who would be leaders. And we pray for the electorate across America. And God, we pray for your blessing on this nation that it would be in return to be a light of goodness in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.